Hi, Dennis. Hello, everyone. I, I want to just give a little bit more background on the reasonable nature of the, the Russian uh, requirement for a new security guarantee, and then look at that from the standpoint of the threats and the bullying that Helga was talking about, and then go back to the question of the deeper question of what's really going on here, because it's really very difficult to believe that the Russians have any intention to invade Ukraine for reasons that were just explained by Helga. So, so what's going on here? Now, Putin's proposal was a highly reasonable one. <clears throat> after 30 years of broken promises, after 30 years of Western uh, moves toward the Russian border, wars launched, regime change operations carried out, psychological warfare inside Russia, blaming Russia for use of chemical weapons and on and on and on. After 30 years of that, Putin basically said, look, we want legally binding written guarantees on three major points, which you just heard from Helga. No further eastward motion of NATO. This was promised in 1990 and again in 1994, and it's been violated ever since. No membership in NATO for Ukraine. A lot of reasons for this, but basically, Ukraine is a divided country. Uh, there's no unity inside the country. Uh, it's not a secure country. There's a corrupt oligarchy. It, its membership in, in NATO would require overriding most of the requirements that exist for a NATO membership. So why the push to bring Ukraine into NATO? And that gets to the third point the danger of the deployment of offensive weapons in Ukraine on the Russian border, as Putin has said, within five to seven minutes of Moscow launch time. So the Russian proposal is, let's go back to the end of the Cold War. Let's go back to 1997 in particular, and for, write an agreement which will give security guarantees to Russia which include a guarantee that Russia will not be the target of a surprise attack from the West. Now, in response to this, we're seeing, as Helga pointed out, Blinken going into the meeting with Lavrov uh, a week and a half ago saying, actually it was a week ago, saying that we're not going to give in to your requests. We're not taking NATO membership from Ukraine off the table. You can't tell us what to do. You don't have a right to spheres of influence. No nation has a right to spheres of influence. Well, what kind of sophistry is that? The United States sphere of influence is the whole world. We have troops and bases in close to 100 countries around the world, many of which are far removed from the geographical location of the United States. This idea of sphere of in, uh, influence. What about the Monroe Doctrine? So this is where you see the sophistry, but it goes further because they're making very serious threats. In particular, there was a January 25th meeting at the White House, and a memo from this meeting uh, was, was produced. And what they said is that they, they defined what they mean by severe economic measures. Uh, the, they said they will hit Putin's strategic ambitions to industrialize the economy. So the sanctions that would be imposed, and there are some people who are saying these sanctions should be imposed preemptively before Russia invades Ukraine. 
Well, the idea that you're going to stop the industrialization or the modernization of the Russian economy, that's economic warfare. That's what's being talked about in the White House. Uh, to deny Russia access to modern technologies. Well, the Russians are coming up with some on their own, like the hypersonic missiles. They're working with the Chinese. But they say to prevent Putin's intention to diversify from exporting oil and gas. This goes back to the argument that Russia is basically a gas station, that it makes all its money with the profile of a third world country from raw materials. And let's keep it that way so they can't develop modern technology. Now, that's a wartime, uh, an aggressive war, uh, pre-war operation coming from the White House. Now, is that really what Biden intends? We don't know. We hear this from Blinken. We hear this from spokesmen from the administration. Biden himself said the United States will not get involved in a war in Ukraine, but that our allies are totally united behind the U.S. desire to protect Ukraine's sovereignty and democracy, which, as I've pointed out before, is a joke given that the sovereignty of Ukraine was violated by the United States and its allies, including people like George Soros and non-governmental organizations in the February coup 2014. But the other question that's coming up now, is NATO really unified? Well, there was a discussion between Macron and Putin where the main discussion topic was reviving the Normandy Four proposals for the Minsk Accord, which essentially is being violated by Ukraine. Ukraine signed an agreement in which they said they would negotiate with leaders of the breakaway republics, so-called, the, the Donbass region. But they refuse to do it. They say they want to negotiate with Russia. But Russia says, this is part of your country. Instead of deploying half the Ukrainian army on the river facing the Donbass, why don't you meet and discuss this with the leaders of the people who are demanding more autonomy? So Macron said that he agrees with Putin that this process should be uh, strengthened. And what that means is that Germany and France, who are the other two signers besides Russia and Ukraine, Germany and France must put pressure on Ukraine. Now, then you had a discussion, a video conference between Putin and the Italian-Russian Chamber of Commerce, or the Russian-Italian Chamber of Commerce, a dialogue about in which Putin said again, Russia has no intention to invade Ukraine, but mostly they talked about trade issues. This did not sit well with the European Union, which initially tried to dissuade the Italians from having this, and then responded that this is an inopportune thing to do, given the Russian threat to invade Ukraine. Now, there's another group, the German Committee on East European Economic Relations, which wants to have a similar video conference with Putin. And it's apparently coming under pressure also. Now, in their request, they cited former German Chancellor Helmut Schmidt, who once said the highest good is the maintenance of peace. This is what is the intent behind these kinds of discussions. Now, we're seeing the emergence in Germany of something very interesting, the old tendency toward Ostpolitik, Eastern politics, which goes back to the Willy Brandt administration from 1969 to 1974, 
where the discussion was of a change in relations through rapprochement, detente, negotiations. And this, of course, was something that was uh, very antithetical at the time to the British-U.S. control over NATO, although Nixon himself then uh, launched certain discussions with Russia. These are a little more murky, but in any case, this tendency is now re-emerging in Germany in spite of the, the vitriolic tendency of the war party and the Greens who are in the cabinet. Now, I'll just review very quickly this uh, Zelensky-Biden call because it gets to the question that I want to go into in more depth, which is who's trying to sabotage a peaceful resolution? Uh, a reporter from CNN named Matthew Chance, who, by the way, just happens to be a British subject, we haven't investigated this enough yet, but that in itself is telling. He apparently either made up a source or found a source who told him something that was not true, that Biden said to Zelensky during the meeting that the Russians will come in and sack Kiev. It will be harmful impact, and you better be prepared for that. Now, it was also uh, said from a CNN uh, editor that Biden said that Russia will definitely invade when the ground freezes. Now, a Zelensky spokesman denied that Biden said that. A National Security Council official named Emily Horn said that CNN is citing anonymous sources who are spreading falsehoods about the call. Well, why should we be surprised that something like this comes from a British subject through CNN, which is a totally disreputable psychological warfare operation rather than a, a news network. But the, this comes at a moment where the U.S. is talking about withdrawing the families of family members of uh, diplomatic personnel in Kiev, which a Ukrainian former defense minister mocked by saying they're safer in Kiev than they would be in Los Angeles or any of the other cities in the United States under siege. So Zelensky himself said this kind of talk is causing panic. It creates the perception that there's a war underway. And he said that's not the case. Now, also Zelensky in his response said this is harming Ukraine's ability to get foreign aid, which they need. They need four to five billion dollars in aid to stabilize the economy. Well, maybe instead of asking for billions of dollars of weapons, they should see if they can get new loans. But why are they in trouble? Why do they have such a large debt? Well, when the coup took place in February 2014, one of the first things the new government of the oligarchs did was bring in the International Monetary Fund, which imposed a form of shock therapy in, on Ukraine. The idea of a transition to a free market economy which drove the living standards down, shut down a lot of industry in Ukraine, and created a problem that the loans that they had taken previously could not be covered. They had to borrow more. And now they're one of the 54 nations that's heavily indebted that the World Bank and others say could be headed toward a debt default, which could trigger a global financial crisis. So if you put this together, what you see is Ukraine, which was always a difficult country because of the ethnic divisions, because of the post-Soviet period and so on, was worsened by the coup, by bringing in the IMF, 
And by making the, the demand that it be brought into NATO to increase the tension that exists already between the Russian population in eastern Ukraine and the uh, majority so-called Ukrainian population in Kiev, which includes in very important positions in its defense and security forces, open neo-Nazis who are out to kill Russians. Now, that's the situation on the ground at present. Let me just do a, a little bit of a brief background on why it's important that this is a British-initiated story. Because it comes at the same time that the British intelligence agencies put out a report saying that they have evidence that the Russians are trying to pull a kind of reverse Maidan, a coup in Kiev to put in a pro-Russian president to replace Zelensky. This was heavily covered in Europe, heavily covered in the United States. And when the Ukrainians said they don't believe it, and the person that the British intelligence named was the, the target or the one that would be brought in by the Russians, when he denounced it and denied it, those stories were never covered. But the fact that the Russians supposedly were organizing a coup was given heavy coverage. Now, what's the British interest here? Many people say, well, LaRouche, you always talk about the Brits, but Britain's a collapsed country. Uh, the United Kingdom is, is no longer very significant. Well, it is still a nuclear power. But more importantly, the British Commonwealth is a political force in the world. The city of London is the dominant financial force in terms of setting the policies. People who are focused on Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and Davos their policies for the Great Reset come from the city of London. Klaus Schwab is not an original thinker. He works closely with Mark Carney, the former director of the Bank of England, who is the person overseeing for the United Nations the Green New Deal and the Great Reset. So this is a British operation. But what's the British interest here? And this goes back to the 19th century what was known as the Great Game, which is the background of the Afghan war. But more importantly, the overall strategy of empire is called geopolitics. And I'm not going to go through the history of that and Mackinder. I've done that before. You can find that on YouTube. But the important conception behind British policy from the 1890s to the present is the greatest threat to the ability of the British and now the United States to dictate the terms of the post-Cold War order would be the same threat that they had in 1900, that of Eurasian integration. And by that, they mean Western Europe, France, Germany, Italy, the countries of Eastern Europe, uniting economically with Russia, with China, with the Asian countries, because that would undermine the power of the city of London. Why? Because of what you just heard from Lyndon LaRouche before. The city of London is, bases its uh, supremacy on monetarism, on neoliberalism, on the ability to speculate and in opposition to investing funds into physical economy. That's always been the, the fighting issue between the American colonies and the new American Republic against the British Empire. The Brits are for free market policies, free trade policies. The United States was founded on policies of uh, protectionism, on investment in physical economy, 
and a, a favor of industry based on science and technology as opposed to looting and predatory policies based on speculation, which is the core of monetarism and has been from the time of the British East India Company in the 18th century. Now let's look at the recent history of this to get a sense of the British role in controlling US policy. I'm going to look very quickly at two prominent British figures who themselves were just spokesmen for the city of London and the oligarchy, but are known for their policies. So let's look at them. First, you have Margaret Thatcher, who in 1983, in an ongoing fight that the city of London was having with people who were saying the city has too much power, she came down along with the high court on the side of the city of London. And the result was what was called the Big Bang, which was a deregulation policy, which did away with much of the uh, control that the government had over the banks and the, and the financial institutions. Uh, this opened the door for a bigger speculation that goes back to the 1971 decision by Nixon to end the Bretton Woods system. The next step in this was 1983 in Britain. Uh, Ronald Reagan took leadership from Margaret Thatcher on this and the Reagan economic policy, even though there was a, somewhat of an economic uh, impact from the uh, big spending on defense. Nevertheless, in 1987, we had a giant stock market crash, October 1987, which had been forecast by LaRouche earlier that year. Why did that happen? Because of the shift to a speculative economy under Thatcher. Now, Nigel Lawson, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer under Thatcher when the Big Bang took place, in, after the 2008 crash, uh, in a moment of candor, said that the crash of 2007-2008 was an unintended consequence of the Big Bang. Now, Thatcher's policy, as I said, was adopted by Reagan, Bush, in 1999, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, and the United States is right there with the United Kingdom, that is Wall Street and Silicon Valley with the city of London, as a deregulated money uh, center uh, for monetarism and neoliberalism. Now, also with Thatcher was the neocon policy of war, the fight to protect the empire. And this really interesting story in 1991, uh, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, and this was, the question was, would the United States do anything or not? Well, Margaret Thatcher was staying with the U.S. ambassador to Britain in Aspen, Colorado for a visit, a vacation. So she was visiting the U.S. ambassador uh, to Britain in Colorado. And George H.W. Bush, the president of the United States, flew to Aspen to meet with her to discuss what should be done about Saddam. And she made this famous comment to him, remember, George, this is no time to go wobbly. And she encouraged him to invade. Later, she said it more colloquially, she said she stiffened his spine at that meeting. Now, just of interest, the ambassador to Britain that she went to visit was Raymond Seitz, who had spent three years before being the ambassador to Britain as the executive assistant to Secretary of State George P. Schultz, a British monetarist to his core. So that's the Thatcher policy, neoliberalism, neocon, 
uh, U.S. British Empire must set the rules of the rules-based order. Now, the next step in that was Tony Blair. And Blair was also a neoliberal and a neocon. His neoliberalism was called the third way, democratic socialism, but also uh, free market policy. Now, Blair always represented the city of London. He was just given the noble order of the garter, the highest honor that you could get from Queen Elizabeth. And Blair's policies were deregulation and neoliberal economics. Tear down the, the role of the government, uh, make everything stakeholder, society, shareholder values. That's what Klaus Schwab is talking about now. LaRouche was attacking this back in the 80s when it started with Thatcher. But under Blair, the impact was especially profound with the Clinton-Gore administration, where Bill Clinton uh, signed on, and th this goes back again to the 80s, where Gore set up the, the uh, Democratic Leadership Council, which said the Democrats have to move to the center, shouldn't be left-wing, and, and so on. Now, they fully embraced the deregulated economic system. In fact, Clinton, under the influence of Robert Rubin, signed the repeal of Glass-Steagall in 1999, which turned, which took away any prohibition against speculation for the commercial banks, the Gramm-Leach-Bliley bill, which opened the door to the crash of 2007-2008, as Nigel Lawson said. William Black, who's a very prominent uh, columnist, analyst, uh, former bank regulator, uh, said that the third way pretends to be a center-left policy, but is actually completely a creation of Wall Street. He called it a false flag operation of Wall Street. That's what Clinton embraced. That's what Obama was full-fledged. That's why Obama bailed out the banks in 2008 instead of listening to LaRouche and putting them through bankruptcy reorganization. Now, on the war question, Blair is the same as Thatcher. Blair is the uh, outspoken proponent of getting rid of the idea of the principle of Westphalia, which is that you must recognize the security interests of other nations. You must act toward other nations as you wish they would act toward you. No interference in the internal affairs of other nations. That was signed in 1648 as the Peace of Westphalia. Blair in 1999 said, no, 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 we can't have that anymore. There's too much evil that has to be taken on. And that's why we have to get rid of the Westphalian principle. And what he put forward instead was the idea of responsibility to protect, which is essentially a justification for regime change coups. And this was brought into the United States by people like Samantha Power, uh, who, by the way, is a Brit, uh, and others who insisted that the Clinton administration get involved in the Balkan War, which the U.S. and NATO bombed Yugoslavia, and especially regime change in Iraq, in Syria, in Libya, and Ukraine. Now, in April 2002, there was a meeting at Blair's uh, country home, the uh, Checkers, which included Lord Boyce, who was the chief of the defense staff, it included Richard Deerloff, the head of MI6, and John, Sir John Scarlett, the head of the Joint Intelligence Committee. They met to discuss Iraq. This was in April 2002, just after the U.S. and NATO invaded Afghanistan. 
Then on April 6th and April 7th, in other words, four days after this meeting, Blair flew to Texas, to Crawford, Texas, to the Bush Ranch, and had two days of meetings with Bush in which they discussed Iraq. Uh, less than a year later, the U.S. invaded Iraq. But before the invasion, in September of 2002, Sir Richard Dearloff provided the dossier, the original dodgy dossier, which claimed Saddam Hussein was building weapons of mass destruction, getting yellow cake uranium from Niger and Africa, and that this was uh, to show that, Bo that, that Saddam Hussein had a capability, according to that report, to hit the United Kingdom with nuclear bombs, nuclear weapons, within 45 minutes whenever they decided to do it. And this was cited by the United States when they went to the United Nations to get support for the invasion of Iraq, the discredited presentation by Sir Colin Powell. Now, there's more you could go into on this British question, the Syrian chemical weapons charges, which came from the White Helmets, which was essentially a British operation working for the overthrow of Assad. You had this Screeple affair, the claims from Porton Down, the British chemical weapons lab, that uh, uh, Putin was deploying agents to kill off Russian defectors with a highly uh, poisonous chemical. Same thing against Navalny. And then the most recent example, again, being this British report at the height of the tension over whether Russia is going to invade or not, claiming that Russia had a plan to overthrow the Zelensky government and put in a pro-Russian government. So I, I want you to think about this question because this British question is real. The British Empire's power is the power of shifting the narrative of creating new narratives and of invading your mind to convince you that the greatest threat to peace and security in the world is the demon Vladimir Putin and the dictator, the authoritarian Xi Jinping in China, and not the fact that under British direction, the United States has taken the lead in shifting the world to a neoliberal economic system, which is responsible for poverty, for absolutely unsustainable debt, putting us on a, a, a pathway toward an economic crash, and at the same time, one war after another, and now targeting Russia and China. So what's the, what's the lesson from all this? Join with the Schiller Institute. Find out how the world really works. This was Lyndon LaRouche's great contribution to humanity not just being able to find out who the bad guys are, but to provide an understanding of how the human mind is the battlefield and that the British are highly sophisticated in their ability to shift the way you think, including the development from Silicon Valley of social media networks and so on, the spy operations and so on, the running of Russiagate, on and on and on. This has to end. The United States has to stop being a dangerous, ferocious beast on a British leash. So that's why the, the hope is that we can pull back from the situation with Ukraine, but more importantly, move toward new security arrangement for the world, which does not start from the city of London and Washington and NATO.
So that's that's what I wanted to present today. Okay, well, thanks a lot, Harley. I returned for a moment to the focus of the physical economic underlying reasons for the present drive toward war. We're going to next hear from TLO agriculture spokesman Bob Baker. And just before Bob speaks, we're going to watch show a video upon which uh, Bob is going to comment. Do we have the video? Uh, no, we're having issues. Okay, you're having a problem with that? Okay, so Bob, then you should go ahead. They have a, they're having a technical issue, and we'll get the video, get to it as soon as we can. Yes, okay, thanks a lot, Dennis. So, yeah, so the question is, uh, with starving people all over the world, why are farmers uh, not allowed to produce food in a, such a profitable way that they can actually stay in business and replicate themselves in the next generation. And this is an ongoing battle that uh, can be sort of uh, organized around the idea of, let's put the culture back in agriculture. And part of the process of doing that is to understand that this is the war that has been going on for centuries. Uh, and in particular, the uh, American Revolution busted out of that gang of old oligarch families uh, through the British Empire that kept that in place. At the time of the American Revolution, we had uh, Britain had about 700 monopolies. And the, the, that's what the, the Tea Party and the, the, the British Empire was controlling the colonies with. So uh, when the American Revolution was won, uh, that's when different things got set in place by our founding fathers. In 1791, after the American Revolution, we had a new nation, and Alexander Hamilton. Yeah, we're having a problem with Bob's audio. So what I want to do is to just give us a, a moment to try to get that together. Uh, Jose's going to have to do something with that. And uh, Harley, what I'm going to do is go to a question that we got for you. Uh, so that you may as well take this at this point. And the question was, uh, Hi, Harley. You mentioned Mackinder. This is the first time I heard of him. Uh, who was he? Why is he relevant to this? Also, what is the link between monetarism and neoliberalism? Okay. Well, Mackinder was a geographer. He, he was um, a member of the Royal Geographic Society. And it was his paper that was presented, I believe, in 1904 that became the basis of geopolitics. Now, what he argued in that is that you can look at the world from the standpoint of the uh, Europe and Eurasia, uh, and then beyond that, the world empire, which he said was essentially Eurasia, Africa, the, the what we call today the Middle East, South Asia, and then the outer islands or the outer belt, which included the United States, Australia. But what he said is that who controls Eastern Europe uh, and Eurasia controls the world island, and who controls the world island controls the world. Now, this was a polemic that was developed at a point where there had been 20 years of sustained spectacular economic growth 
in countries such as Germany, uh, France, uh, Italy, Russia, Japan, based on the um, spread of the American system to those countries. This was as a result of the Lincoln Revolution, the Transcontinental Railroad, the uh, development of agriculture, the development of industry in the United States, uh, which was unparalleled in, in human history. And so these other countries came to study it at the U.S. Centennial Exhibition in uh, uh, 1876 and went back and started applying it, including Bismarck uh, spectacularly in Germany. Bismarck uh, had put up uh, protectionism against British steel and, and Russian and, and East European wheat. Uh, he had a banking program that gave credit to the industrialists and, and businesses. Uh, in other words, there was a total change going on in Europe. And this threatened the control of world trade and finance that the city of London had held unbroken uh, since the consolidation of the East India Company in the, the middle of the 18th century. So Mackinder's argument was, you must never allow a European, Central European, Eurasian alliance, because who controls the heartland will control the world. And the British used that, that conception, after 1904, to go after the French and the Russians. Remember, there was a Russian-Japanese war in 1905, which the Russians lost. The British funded Japan and a weakened Russia was brought into an entente, which previously was between the British and the French because of the collapse of the, the French system uh, following the loss of colonies in Africa and certain other kinds of developments inside France. So the triple entente was pulled together of the British, the French, and the Russians against Germany to stop things such as the Trans-Siberian Railroad and the Berlin to Baghdad Railroad, which was uh, threatening the, the British control. So that's Mackinder. Mackinder developed that theory. There are all sorts of different ideas that have come from that, but that's still, why were we in Central Asia and Afghanistan for 20 years? Why was Afghanistan the center of a war between the East and West for the last 40 years? This, is, this has everything to do with Mackinder and geopolitics. Mackinder later went on to be a, a uh, important figure at the London School of Economics, uh, and his writings are still studied by geopoliticians. Now, the, the second part, what was the second part of the question, Dennis? Uh, well, he asked about the uh, difference between, uh, what is the link between oh. monetarism and neoliberalism? Well, neoliberalism starts from the idea that if you get government out of the way and get regulation out of the way, the free market will be highly efficient and will allow for the proper deployment of capital <clears throat> to allow for productivity gains, trade, and so on. But this theory of efficient capital is a complete fraud. Uh, it basically is what LaRouche was talking about as monetarism. The idea that what's important in an economy is money and therefore getting as much of it as you can, as opposed to the starting point of physical economy, which is that the transformation of nature for the benefit of all of human society is the important conception that has to dominate economic policy. So on the one side, maximize profit. Well, this goes back to Adam Smith, who said, buy cheap and sell dear. 
use cheap labor, cheap raw materials, control of the terms of trade. That's what the free market is all about. It's not free. You think it's free when the British who had a manufacturing sector could come into any country and undersell them and then demand no tariffs? That's what Hamilton understood. By having a tariff policy, you were not shutting out the whole world and going to the fortress America. You were allowing American industry to compete. And it doesn't mean you compete in everything, but in certain areas of importance for national security. Also, government spending on infrastructure. The idea today of the neoliberals and the monetarists is that's a waste of money. Let the private sector do it. Well, the private sector is not going to invest the amount of money that's needed because there's not the return. In the shareholder society, the important thing is the return on your investment. And LaRouche once raised this question very polemically. If you had $10,000 to invest, what would be the best investment? 10000 in a whorehouse or 10000 in a steel mill? Where do you make the most rapid return? Certainly not in a steel mill. But what's more important for an economy to have that kind of industry? Uh, and, and that also LaRouche talked about the morality of production as opposed to the immorality of just cheap bucks, just making money. So neoliberalism starts from the standpoint that money is the most important thing. And that if you have smart people who control money, they'll make more money. The problem is they're not going to invest in the areas of science and technology that will increase the productivity in the future, which means they're putting you on a dead end to eventually having a bubble economy that will collapse. And that's where we are today.